Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This is Corporal Hicks aka Aaron Percival and joining me as always is my squad mate, my clan mate, my brother in arms of this massive war that has been taking place. It's Adam Zeller aka Ridgetop. Trying to move on from the partner in crime thing, huh? Trying to, uh, something more thematic? Yeah, I've just... I mean, I used to like it when we did like the, the Parker, you know, the Brett to my Parker kind of thing, but I never used to want to overplay it that much, but it's just it's just more fun going thematic that way. So I'd do a better job if I prepared with that kind of thing, but you know me. We'll figure it out. We'll get it. Is he the leader to your mains? Because you two have to kiss now. <laughs> well, you know, d did you get a hug when we met? I can't remember. I think you got a big hug. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, man. You shared a pint with him. That's good enough. I was talking to the missus about it, about you yesterday, you know, when you, you messaged to put it back an hour. And I was like, I can't wait for Adam to come over again. I'm going to give him a handshake, a big hug, and then I'm going to slap him around the face. <laughs> <laughs> That's for all the waiting you've made me. For all the fucking annoyances that this man has I given mean, that me. That sounds fair. So one of these days I'll find myself in the UK again. And also here is the legless, armless predator scientist that we've been escorting around is uh... <laughs> okay <laughs> oh man <laughs> oh, if you've read the book you'll get it <laughs> uh, who else have we That's got cold, here? Dude. <laughs> <laughs> well you're the expert you know the, the xenopedia editor you know uh... <laughs> Who who are you? Uh, I don't know. Who the fuck am I? Hello, it's who the fuck, aka Lee or Lee, aka who the fuck. I don't know which way around that works. <laughs> Glad to be back. Looking forward to finishing this trilogy. Indeed. Well, I hope you've already finished it. We're about to talk about it. <laughs> yes, I fit. Trilogy of podcasts. That's fair, and that that'll be it for Lee for the year. <laughs> yeah, you won't see me again for a while, so. <laughs> You didn't finish Infernos, did you? Uh, I haven't even started yeah, yet. Okay. So there's only one book we know of coming this year, and um, it's unlikely Lee will be on that one, reading that one Next anytime month, right? soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because the, the recent ones are sequential, aren't they? Yeah. Well, in theory. Colony War. So bad it damaged his interest in the books. Yes, but we're not we're not talking Colony War. But maybe. No, we're talking good books. Yes. Maybe Lee will be interested in that one. Who knows? <laughs> but yes, welcome to uh, episode 161 which is our third and final episode on the Rage War, and we will be talking about Armageddon, or Alien versus Predator Armageddon, sorry, should I say. It's done, boys. We've we've finished this trilogy, and it's been a fucking fun ride. You know what? I've, yeah. I've had the spoilers. You know, I enjoyed this book. I, I Like, I enjoyed all the rest of them. Predator Incursion, Alien Invasion, and AVP Armageddon. I've thoroughly enjoyed all of them. And I'm kind of a little sad. I'm kind of a little sad that we're done because there was a lot of... I just really enjoyed Tim's style. You know, he really pulled me into this very different take on the Alien and Predator universe. And, you know, he's done such a good job with the characters and the world building. And I'm sure something we'll talk about in here as well. You know, you, you know damn well that it would have piqued my interest. And, you know, and that's that's the Drew Cathy. It's very... Well, it's all Tim. James Moore was the only one who even touched them 
the only other person who touched them. And I don't think Jim really did anything in Sea of Sorrows with them. So very much a Tim creation. And yeah, just reading through these again has reminded me, you know, that I do very much enjoy Tim's work. But before we start, who the fuck has, what well, is going, I was going to say has prepared, but I think this one's a, uh, is going to attempt to summarize the book for the folk listening who might not remember or might not have read it, but if some for some strange reason have decided to jump in on this podcast and listen to our thoughts on it. So Lee, are you ready to try and summarize the galactic spanning war and events of this book? I will give it my best shot. I am cheating a little bit. I'm reading this off of my own Wikipedia page that I think I probably wrote. So a bit of self-plagiarism going on. But anyway. It doesn't, doesn't count as self-plagiarism. Yeah, I don't know. It's, there's a word for it. I remember being told about it at university. But anyway, that's not the point. Right. So much like the last book, this one picks up pretty much exactly where the previous one left off. And we've got Lilia and Hashori hiding out on hell. and they're slightly surprised to find that Alexander has somehow still followed them and is now approaching the station and it's about to get pretty real. So they managed to convince Django and Yvette Tan to help them escape the station aboard the Satan Saviour, which is a mercenary ship. And they sort of get out of Dodge just as Alexander launches his assault on the station. He fills it with xenomorphs much slaughter is happening they bug the hell out alexander basically leaves hell to get ripped to pieces by his aliens and then continues his chase of them they realize he's not going to give up so what they manage to do is through hashori they manage to lure him into a uh, a predator ambush basically the predators just unleash hell on his ship and blow it the hell apart and take him out so they're pretty happy now that they're safe alexander is done so they carry on towards earth where they hope to deliver to humans the uh, technology that Lilia is carrying that they hope will help them win the war. But Alexander has managed to survive his ship getting blown all to pieces. And uh, in perhaps my favourite moment in the whole series, he repairs his mangled body by grafting bits of his own dead alien soldiers onto himself. So he's got alien arms and legs and basically turns himself into this horrible hybrid. And then he hijacks a predator ship that has come to investigate the wreck and uh, and continues his chase. While all this is going on, you've got the Rage General Mashima, who has finally arrived at Weaver's World, and he uh, begins his assault on the planet. He's got just tens of thousands of aliens that he unleashes on the civilians. And unlike previous attacks where they've been going after military targets, this is just slaughter. He just goes after the civilian populace, like maximum damage. He attacks all of the outlying sort of rural settlements that have no real defense and just slaughtering everybody. And the Marine garrison on the planet, which is led by uh, General Budinov, is doing their best to sort of defend the population centers, but they're just completely outgunned. They can't even scratch the raged landing ships that are coming down until a bunch of predators arrive and uh, sort of wade into the battle and help out. And they they sort of do, you know, do some damage to the uh, rage fleet. And they also start landing on the ground and fighting close quarters hand to hand alongside the Marines. And news of all of this carnage reaches Halley and Isa Palant, who are still holed up on the secret predator asteroid base where Palant is digging into the captured rage general that they have to work on who she's she's dubbed oscar in lieu of a real name and she's working with a predator scientist a a legless 
predator scientist who has this funky, slightly Vries-like wheelchair device that she uses. And the two of them are sort of probing Oscar, trying to work out, you know, any secrets they can find about how they control the aliens, you know, what the what the rage are planning. Palant has a, a word with Collector to discuss what's going on. And through this chat, she works out that the technology that the Rage are using originates with a race of ancient aliens that the Predator called the Drukathi. And for a bit of colour, these are the dog aliens that first appeared in Out of the Shadows. And even the even the Predators are terrified of these guys. And Kalacta suggests that the Dukathi, even though they've left our galaxy millennia ago, he suggests that perhaps they are influencing what is currently happening and sort of orchestrating this war as a means to prevent mankind from becoming too technologically advanced. So they're sort of manipulating events from afar. This disturbs Palant. She's not sure if she buys it, but she goes back to her work. But somehow, despite the fact they've rendered Oscar's self-destruct inert, he, uh, he manages to bypass their safeguards and starts preparing to detonate himself. They've managed to avoid it, and Halley and, and Co. basically just vaporise Oscar with their funky future pulse rifles. In the android's final moments, Yakita manages to extract the location of the Rage flagship, Macbeth. So they now know where all of the Rage High Command are, are holding up. The aboard the Satan Savior, which is where Lilia and the Tans are, they're, they're, the Tans are also doing some research on Lilia, trying to get at the alien control tech that she's got in her blood that she's trying to deliver to Earth. And they learn of what Palant and Co have been doing on the asteroid base, and they basically realize that their best chance of beating the rage is to pull their resources. So they agreed to meet up. But unfortunately, in order for them to get to Palant, they have to go through a drop hole that the Rage have captured and are now defending. So they basically, they've got to fight their way through. They engage the, the Rage ships in, in space combat and where the captain of the Satan Savior uses some very unorthodox sort of tactical maneuvers to sort of, you know, they, they hold their own. They, they, they take out a few of them, but eventually their ship is disabled and the Rage stick a bunch of aliens on board. And so the crew have to go hand to hand in the corridors uh, with Hashori helping out and fight off these aliens. And they actually, they manage to pull it off. They get the aliens, but then the rage respond by just sending over so many more. You know, they're, they're done at this point. They can't possibly fight this many. And just in the nick of time, a bunch of predators arrive and take out all the aliens. Alexander arrives at the same time and docks with their, their ship, but the predators manage to activate the uh, stasis systems on his stolen predator ship and basically freeze him before he can do anything and they end up saving the satan savior anyway back at the uh yalta asteroid base Iwacha, Aucha. i'm gonna stop you right there it's predator it's yaucha no, yeah let's just it's, it's predator, predator. <laughs> <laughs> at least that's how the the um uh narration of the book on tape book on tape audiobook <laughs> book on tape is not how old much. are you <laughs> <laughs> like a reel to reel audiobook <laughs> let's stick with predator Back on the Predator asteroid base, Palant has come up with this idea that they can remotely access the Rage General's self-destruct systems and trigger them remotely, blowing them the hell up because they all have these inbuilt nuclear self-destructs. And they figure that if they do this, they'll remove the Rage's control over the aliens and it might give humanity a chance of beating them because they'll no longer be a cohesive you know, military force. But in order to pull this plan off, they decide that 
in all likelihood, they're going to have to get aboard the Macbeth and access the main control center for all of the Rage Generals. So they, they set off in, in the Pixie, in, in Halley's ship, and they use this secret predator drop hole that's right inside the middle of this asteroid, inside human space, just sort of hidden here, that they've been, you know, sitting on all this time. And they use it to jump, and they go and meet up with Lilia and Hashori and the others on the Satan Saviour, and they have a little uh, military conference. And to test this, this plan they've come up with, they test it on Alexander. So they, they jettison him out into space, and then Lilia manages to remotely detonate him. So they realize that they can pull this off. It's just a question of whether they can get to the Macbeth in time to make any difference. So they go after it. When they get to where they think it is, they find it's, it's vanished. Uh, and the only thing that they find left behind is a, a drop hole that the, the Rage have used their technology to massively update and upgrade. And they realize that the Macbeth has gone through and has, through these, through these upgrades, has performed just an unbelievably long jump all the way to the solar system they're now going for earth so as soon as it comes through it splits up into these 12 separate ships and they go after the uh, marine central command center on the sharon space station and you know the marines they put up a hell of a fight they use all of their various defensive weapons and countermeasures and all of the defense all of the combat personnel on station and they put up a hell of a fight but they just even they can't match it and that station is just slowly overwhelmed and completely obliterated by the rage and at the last moment general bassett sort of sends out a final report basically acknowledging his his you know the fall of the the command system passing command to whoever is next in line which isn't even clear at this point because there's you know the casualties across the, the galaxy are just so severe and he is killed moments before the station explodes. But just before it does, Jared Marshall, the uh, Wayland yutani executive, manages to slip away in a, in a ship with a couple of Marines. And they are going to enact the doomsday scenario that they've been discussing for some time, which is the complete deactivation of the drop hole network in order to stall the Rage's advance. I mean, they realize that doing this is going to shatter human civilization as it is known and strand you know, all these colonists are going to be stranded in their systems. They're never going to reach another colonized, another colonized uh, system again. But it's the only way they can think of to slow the rage down. So he goes to this secret command center for the drop hole network that's hidden in this supposedly derelict ship that's drifting in space. And they go inside and they access the command center and they just sit down and wait for a sign that the war has been lost. So with with the with Sharon Station out of the way. Beatrix Maloney, the rage leader, is uh, is pressing on towards Earth, and this is her end game now. You know she's going to take Earth, and then that will be it. But just before she can get there, the Pixie attacks, and uh, she realizes that Lilia is the only crew member aboard, against the advice of her underlings who are telling her to just you know finish this now and just kill her. Maloney, in true megalomaniac style, she wants her her bit of satisfaction before she offs. Lilia and has her broad aboard for a bit of gloating. As she does so, she brings the pixie is disabled and broad aboard. And as it is, Hallie and uh, her marines and Palant sneak aboard in a in a predator a cloaked predator ship in behind as it's brought in. And storm and aliens are unleashed to counter this. Pretty quickly, it's clear that they're not going to make it to the Android Command Center and carry out their plan. So Hans and the mercenary crew from the second they would along a whole load of predators led by Calacta to sort of stir up a diversion on board, distract the defending aliens a little bit and hopefully give Palant a chance to, to get to the android control. 
So there's just, you know, carnage on the ship against all the odds. Pallant makes it and she uh, she uploads the the modified Rage nanotech that they developed for this planet. And uh, just as Maloney is about to feed Lilia to the alien queen by means of, you know, killing her in the most humiliating way she can think up. Not that that would have been nutritional to the alien. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was weird. She's like, we're going to feed you to the queen. I figured that was just the most awful she could think up. Mm. Uh-huh, so well, at that point, I was like, is the queen really going to buy it? Okay, I'll, I'll roll with it. Well, I suppose they they surely control them anyway, so it should be able to yeah. direct her to. Yeah, there we are. There, we've sorted it. We've sorted that little discrepancy. <laughs> so moments from Lilia being fed into the queen, she uh, she gets the message that planted to go, and so she she manages to transmit signal to all of the generals across the whole galaxy and destroys them. Just at the same time, her own heart, which she modified with a nuclear self destruct, goes off, kills her queen, kills. Beatrix blows the Macbeth to hell. Pallant and Harry and the Tans and most of the uh, most of the mercenaries they they manage to survive because they're all in the rear of the ship and it automatically sort of ejects its engine core as it's destroyed and they get safely eject. Well, I say safely, they get the hell beat out of them, but they survive. They are ejected in the core. Unfortunately, slightly with a slightly dark ironic twist, aboard the derelict with the drop hole command center the uh, marshal and the others detect all of these nuclear explosions and then all sort of radio traffic in the solar system ceases and they take this as a signal that the rage have won and so thinking that the war is lost and knowing that they're condemning not just all of the colonists throughout space but probably themselves to a lonely death in deep space they shut down for good the entire drop hole network and so the human sphere basically ceases to exist and so it ends on a very grim note yeah, it's bleak as hell. Kind of, you have a tinge of hopefulness where the predators are like, oh yeah, we still have our drop holes. Maybe we'll let you use them. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. Yes, yeah, it's, it's dark, it's bleak, but it's also kind of a, a reset because he, uh, you know, he's he's developed this hugely interconnected, vast human, you know, interstellar travel is, is as quick as it's ever been. And he kind of resets it to sort of... That's alien. And aliens levels, yeah, you know, it goes back to space travel is hard and takes a long time. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big reset. It's a, sort of like the big deletion, but makes more sense. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In the aftermath of this, we've got all of our survivors sort of regroup and take stock of, you know, what the hell they're going to do now. So the, the Rager, you know, the, the sort of human command element of the range has been completely wiped out. But, they, you know, their aliens are still all over the place. You know, Weaver's world is still getting absolutely pounded, you know, and now they're properly isolated. You know, there's no reinforcements coming from anywhere else. So they sort of, you know, wonder what are they going to do in this in this in this new world? They're also worried about the the remaining section of the Macbeth that they've escaped on falling into Wayland yutanis hands. So uh, Hallie and her Marines are well up for just vaporizing it with some nukes. But uh, Hashuri insists that the Predators are going to take it for study. Basically, Hallie's in no position to argue with them and in no mood to kick off another war. So they just let them have it. Hashuri also invites Pallant and the, the Tans to accompany her on a, on a, a pilgrimage to the, the Predator homeworld, which is apparently a thing that the, every Predator does once in their life. I can totally see that coming from a nomadic species as well. Yeah, I like that. That was a nice little nice mm. little touch. And then Hallie and, and Hoik, who's her final surviving marine, 
they're basically deciding whether they want to go back and face a court martial for going rogue in the last book. Still saving the galaxy, I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the military are very strict with their discipline. But then uh, Ware gives them the offer of joining her mercenary crew to replace the crewmates that she's lost. And uh, they, the book sort of ends with Hallie considering whether to take her up on it. It does. It does end on a hopeful note. It, it does with that sort of wrap up with. Um, I think the chapter's called "The Survivors," isn't it? The final chapter. Yeah. So there's there's definitely a twinge of positivity as the the final pages sort of uh, fly by. Mm. So yeah, that uh, that is that. That is the end of the book and the end of this trilogy. Thank you very much. So. Since we've just heard Lee's voice for about 15 minutes, I'll pass it over to Adam. So, Mr. Zeller, what did you think? It was good. I mean, it definitely felt like this was the climax, right? This was the third part of the story. These Really, these felt like just one long book. They didn't feel like, you know, it didn't feel like this is a sequel to the first and this is a sequel. Like, it felt like this was one continuous long story. So it would be nice if they just re-released it as a big, thick book, you know, just like they did with Out of the Shadows trilogy i guess but it was really cool very epic these are the biggest battles and uh, we've ever seen in uh, any like alien predator avp book just thousands and thousands and thousands of aliens big battlefields across worlds and space nukes being fired between ships left and right so just really epic space opera battles again this really reminded me of mass effect but I really like the characters here and the journey they go on. And especially when these two groups meet up, you know, you have Lilia meeting up with Issa Palant finally and seeing how that goes down, seeing this predator base. And I've always been interested in what the predators do beyond just hunting. So seeing a predator scientist and Issa Palant's interactions with her as they were both researching, it was really interesting. And it was a uh, a very nice conclusion to the story. I mean, it wasn't perfect. It definitely had some issues. I thought Beatrix Maloney was kind of silly at times as a villain. She's just this mad old woman. And even her uh, subordinates start to question her like, hey, what, what's exactly our end game here? And she's just like, ah, everything. Haha, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and it was funny because there, there was one point where one of her servants is, because she's like, well, humanity will probably welcome us as, as liberators because Weyland Yutani's gotten too powerful. And she's like, after we've like straight up murdered all their civilians and stuff. And she's like, it, it, it won't matter if they don't welcome us. We'll be too powerful. And she's like, but you just said Weyland Yutani has too much power. And she's like, well, know your place. Shut up. And I'm just like, oh, man, you just you just lost the plot at this point, haven't you? But there were still some really cool epic battles. It was just like insane how the rage was, their armies were all xenomorphs and the generals were all synthetics, but there's not much of a race behind the rage, you know? They have like, what, a hundred shipborn, if that, and a few elders, and they're all just following this crazy woman. So I thought it might have been interesting to see a bit more dissent there. Yeah, but you get whole rebellions in the second book, I think. Uh, I think the descent was sort of firmly established. That's true. So were, were they among the rage? I thought they were. They were f the fine ship. I get the. Oh, two. you 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 keep yeah, getting I get the two confused. No, it was a rage. Yeah, thing. the the crew of the Othello. Oh, that's right. They the were like the book, followers they rebelled. Of of words they were right? yeah closer to the original yeah. founder's leader yeah and you see the scene there's like a flashback where she originally murders wordsworth so that that was confirmed you know lilia's suspicions on that if you don't like team-ups between humans and predators you won't like this book because it's pretty much the most epic human predator team-up ever but overall there's a lot to like here if you read the first two and enjoyed the first two you're gonna like this one 
it's a nice conclusion to the trilogy. I was engaged. I didn't want to put the book down. Tim Lubin just has a very, it's, it has a really nice flow to like his writing style, you know? I'd love to see him do more writing. As far as something this epic and like space opera in the Alien and Predator universe, I kind of like this as a one-off thing. I don't know if I'd want to see more of this. We kind of said that in our last podcast, right? Like this is cool because it's so different from the norm, but I wouldn't want this to be the norm. But it's a really good read. I'd probably score it. can't remember what we scored the first two, but I'd probably score it the same. They're all sitting around sevens, I think. Yeah. Go on then, Lee. Now that it's all done and dusted with, and did your opinions change from what you remembered of it? Nope. I think I think I mentioned in the first of these podcasts that either the, the first or the third book is is my favourite, and I think I still feel like that now that I've I've read them. It's it's a great conclusion to the the trilogy. The the attack sequence on Sharon Station is awesome. It's 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 such a roller coaster sort of sequence. You were never really sure if they were going to survive it or not. Mm, yeah, because it starts off going quite well for them, like the Marine, defending Marines, and they've just got so much to throw at the Rage. They got all the like, they've got. I love the um, they have a whole dedicated unit of Marines whose specialty is like EVA combat, like space combat, and they go out in their jetpacks and they're sort of shooting at the aliens as they're coming in through space. Like it's just it's such an exciting sequence. But then it just all goes wrong and they get annihilated. And you're like, holy shit, this was like the best of the best. And they've just been, you know, brushed aside. So like uh, like Richtop says, some great sequences in it. The the sort of madness of Maloney, I sort of took that as tying into the whole Drew Cathy orchestrating yeah, everything, yeah. which I confess I'd actually completely forgotten about that whole sort of plot point. So I was really pleasantly sort of surprised when I read that bit about, you know, this all being orchestrated by some sort of higher beings. I thought that was a neat little twist. And it, again, it explains the sort of the thinness of some of the rages plans and thinking you know they're being manipulated into doing this you know the presumably the drew cathy technology that they've stolen they're using is influencing them somehow you know influencing maloney into making these decisions didn't they say like in the earlier books you know that there was like a strange feeling on midnight yeah but it's sort of played as as just like sort of an ominous you know like a sixth sense kind of thing i'd completely forgotten it literally spelling out the you know, this was perhaps external influence. And I thought, like I said, I thought that was a really great little plot point. And mm-hmm. the fact that I'd forgotten about it made it all the sweeter to, you know, read it again. I will say this book has probably my one genuine complaint of the three, which is um, Tim builds Alexander up as such an awesome, like this, the scene where he grafts the dead alien parts to himself. Like, it's such a fantastic idea and it's built up and then he kind of doesn't do anything like he shows up and you're expecting like some epic showdown with this guy and then they just sort of put him to sleep and then they <laughs> put him out an airlock and, and blow him up and it's 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 a bit of a letdown given what his character had become by this point i don't know what else they could really have done with it and obviously it's they need to test out their idea before they go through to the end game but that that's probably my only real complaint from the whole trilogy of of novels but yeah, I loved it. It was fantastic. As a as a tr- whole trilogy, I'd probably rate it eight out of ten. Like I said, it's we've mentioned it time and again. It's it's just so different and refreshing. And as Adam says, I would like it to stay as sort of a one off. But as a one off, it's a really good read. What do you think about? So, like you, Lee, you you said it really well earlier. You know, the the end of this book is a reset. You know, it is returning this future. What what are we? The twenty six hundreds. 
this far-flung past resurrection future of Star Trek technology, of, you know, warp drives, of giant stargates in space, you know. And it resets it to the frontier world. It sets it to space being a struggle. You know, travel between the stars takes forever and, and everything's sort of frontiers life. Would you want to see this time frame, this post-Rage War world where, yes, those difficulties have been reinstated, but then you've still got things like these super fucking awesome con rifles and these very sophisticated battle suits. And, you know, there's still knowledge of advanced technologies and stuff like that. But would you want to see a, maybe a more alien slash aliens take on that world? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because I think the sort of level of technology they have, like the aliens had to be a much larger, more orchestrated threat to overcome the kit that the Marines have in this. Like, I think if you just chuck these Marines into a smaller aliens situation, I think they just mop up. But I mean, if Tim wants to come back and write it, I will read it. <laughs> I'll be all over that. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it's interesting because in a way it sort of sets everything back, but in a way they've also still got no, they've still got a lot of this technology. They haven't lost it. But I guess you could have sort of like a distant colony world where, yes, they have this technology, but it's breaking down and they haven't got the means to fix it anymore. You know, that could be kind of an interesting sort of aesthetic to go for. So, yeah, I'd, uh, I'd be up for something like that. Kind of relating it to Mass Effect again, I never finished Mass Effect 3. I heard the ending was controversial and I still haven't had it spoiled for me after all this time. <laughs> but I'm going to take a wild guess that it has something to do with the mass relays all being shut down. So I wonder if that's like another similarity with this. It was kind of interesting that you have Gerard Marshall essentially misinterpreting the news that's being told to him and shutting down this network. So it's like, uh, better hope he doesn't find out that he turned all those off for nothing after they had won, actually. So, yeah, it did kind of feel like, ah, uh, what? Like, really? But, you know, it, it does leave hope there that the Predators, because you know the dynamic between humans and Predators could never really go back to what it was before this conflict because they've just become so intertwined now. And the Predators hint that they could share their technology. And so perhaps slowly a human travel network could be reestablished. As far as the Drukathi orchestrating things from afar, I kind of just took that as a theory rather than like, this is what's happening. And I was a bit worried about that in the book. I was a bit worried like, oh, are we making the ancient race just like they hate humanity because they hate humanity again like we did with the engineers? But it doesn't really give a definitive answer on that, especially when, like, Issa injects the phase at the end. And it doesn't do anything to stop what they're doing, essentially. So the phase are not really on the side of the rage. You know, they speculate on the phase a bit too, like maybe this is just a machine, maybe it is just a tool that they're using. I sort of took it as the phase was facilitating the things that would... The, the whole Drew Cathy plan, yeah, it's kind of ambiguous, but, you know, my reading of it was it was about keeping everybody down. You know, it was about making sure there was no one race that was just dominating and, and was ruling everybody. And my take on it was that this whole war was about doing exactly how the book ends. You know, it was knocking down mankind a peg. You know, not necessarily mankind, but technologically advanced races. You know, the Predators knew of them and were very fearful in a fashion of the Drew Cathy. So I, I took it more about just making sure that everybody else wasn't quite on the same level as, as the Drew Cathy ended up being, which was why the rage was 
at the phase was like sort of doing these things that would help the rage, which would then help them in their war effort and everything be disruptive. I just really, really liked that idea, you know, of, of it being this. It's very much like the Reapers in Mass Effect, where it was, you know, some of the earlier like take on the alien as this cyclical force that was constantly forcing a reset on on technologically advanced races. You know, that's how destroying angels sort of implied the aliens were. But in this, you know, th- this take, it's it's the Drew Cathy orchestrating it and using the aliens in a fashion to do it. So I very much like that kind of thing. You know, I I have a very huge soft spot for the ancient alien story. You know, the the ancient advanced kind. Kind of elements and narratives of these things it's, it's why i always found the, the space jock is fascinating it did kind of feel a little weird in the this is the path that the dog aliens took because from what i remember of out of the shadows you know they weren't set up as being this ominous feel of a race you know yeah that's what i was worried about there was like a moment in out of the shadows i think where they come across a family of the dog aliens you know uh, parental units protecting a, a child so it did sort of feel a little bit too far but at the end of the day you know i had so much fun with the the whole ancient aliens conspiracy element of it that i was like you know what it's fine it's fine we'll we'll we'll, we'll roll with this and i really liked that because i did think it explained you know some of the the flimsiness in the motivation it sort of explains maloney going a little um megalomaniac a little bit too cardboard villainy you know she she was fun in a lot of the earlier stuff and in this one it did sort of get a little bit cartoonish villain but then it was you know the drew kathy involvement and then the way that the book you know tim used helpers to sort of highlight the flaws in in her logic and her plan you know it made it all come together for me with this influence and and this awareness of those flaws so yeah it it worked for me it was kind of funny when uh, maloney had that video call with one of the heads of the 13 and he was like so what is your end game like what do you want and even she was like ultimate power everything and he's like you really don't know what you're doing do you and she's like you'll see what i'm doing so yeah it was it was just kind of funny how she couldn't really articulate what the end goal for them was other than just like sticking it to the humans you know but yeah as far as the Ducathy, i i'm kind of the same mind with you there aaron because i thought again just like the space jockeys they were more interesting as this long dead race than like this super omnipotent thing that had for some reason moved to another galaxy i think we're disagreeing there i quite liked them yeah i quite liked them being fleshed out well i thought you said you were worried they would become like too ominous or something no i I thought it felt a little bit maybe too far of a step from how they were first introduced because i thought yeah that's that's what i mean like i agree with yeah but i mean like even Nazis had families that they cared about. I, oh, yeah. I don't. I, it's been a long time since I've read Out of the Shadows, but I'm just like, can we just get a good alien race that is not like out to get humanity for once? <laughs> I mean, we're all pretty shitty. <laughs> just because there was some dead Drukathi, you know, protecting their young from the aliens, that doesn't mean they're not also mass murdering, you know, sons of bitches. I mean, that that's fair. So, but I mean, the, the, it has, the like I said, it has been a long time since I've read Out of the Shadows, but I don't remember. I mostly remember Out of the Shadows just being like, you know, we know nothing about these things. So I didn't find their portrayal in this necessarily conflicted with that. I just have this sort of overarching memory and feeling of them being portrayed as maybe a little bit more benign in in out of the shadows that that's all maybe maybe that is my memory being not quite accurate i mean uh, anybody out there who uh, who has out of the shadows a bit more fresh on the memory please feel free to uh share your interpretations of that change with us 
there is uh, Predator Coffee in this book, by the way. Yes, and, and, the, and the food as well. Yeah, and that was an interesting part of the book where Issa Plant and uh, what was the Predator scientist's name? Yaquita. Yaquita, right. Interesting name. They were busy researching this android general while her marine defectors, I guess you would call them at this point, they were just kind of chilling. And the predators had these food replicators that would try to come up with things humans would normally eat, you know, but they would only get so close. So it was kind of interesting just seeing them like getting bored and passing the time on this predator station. I also quite like the idea, like the predators can sort of synthesize at least, you know, with reasonable accuracy, human food. Why would they know how to do that? Like they've been feeding some victims or something. Like <laughs> I thought there was like there was not obvious, but just like a sort of subtle implication there. Of, you know, there was a reason they knew how to do this, and what was it? And it probably wasn't good. Well, one of the the marine character does wander the station a bit, and they find like a um, uh, espionage station. room, yeah. I guess, where they're monitoring all these human communications. The predators are, which I thought was pretty cool, because if you think of something like that, it's like, oh, maybe that. That's how like the berserker predators and in predators would find these humans and select them for the hunting preserve or something like that. I mean, I think that makes sense anyway, because the predators are, you know, they might be the name predators, but they're, they're hunters, you know, they stalk and kill prey and reconnaissance and observation of your prey is part of that process. So if they're doing it on such a hugely galactic scale, it kind of makes sense that they'd be keeping track of preferred or favorite species. Plus, if they're drawn to conflict, you know, they don't just fly around hoping to stumble on a war. You know, they know where the war is happening. They go there. And I got vibes as well of uh, Earth War. I always like those moments with Billy and Earth War where, although is Earth War the right thing? You know what I mean? The original the original trilogy where she's watching all the broadcasts from Earth of all the survivors. I mean, I, I'm sure it's entirely un, unintentional, but it was, a, it was a little moment. And Adam, you mentioned something that has, I've not really talked about it, but it does actually bug me throughout the trilogy. You said the word replicator. To Star Trek for you. So there's a, quite a few bits of terminology throughout the the series uh, like warp drive warp drive in particular yeah. that kind of it's such a minor bugbear and it only bugs me because obviously i'm such a big trekkie but i i you know you've probably noticed this as we've been doing some of the um consultant work i i have a thing about terminology and for us it's more of a uh, been more of a thing about predators using her human terminology no big reason why i can't make it very far into rift war but with this kind of thing it's like it's reminding me too much of something else and it just it's only very brief but it pulls me out for these very brief snippets of, of times where i'm just you know it's picard going engage kind of thing where it doesn't quite feel right for what i'm reading at that moment so very minor bugbear but it, it's one of those things that just takes me out of it very briefly yeah i mean it's it's an picky fan thing in general but it's the same thing like the predator ships it describes them as firing lasers and i remember when we were doing some work on eyes of the demon we're like well they use plasma they don't use lasers you know so yeah those little nitpicks can kind of irritate you sometimes as if you're an observant fan i guess and there was another thing too that was kind of interesting it's like all these books kind of allude to oh we can't let Waylon yutani get this technology because they're too big and, and powerful you never really see Waylon yutani be that nefarious in this if anything you kind of see the opposite like most of the 13 the heads of Waylon yutani have they just have humanity in mind they're very reasonable even gerard marshall he's kind of like they've all thought i was this company man but now i have like bigger aims beyond profit i'm like trying to save humanity here so he is i like that though yeah 
Yeah, I like that though. Is you know, Tim took the sort of the the way Wayland Utani is often depicted in the books and sort of twisted it and gave you sort of you know their sort of a humanized Wayland Utani version of events. It was yeah, I, I dug that. I mean, there's bits of it. I know in the earlier books they were talking about oh we need to get our hands on this alien control yeah. technology, you know. But it, like you said, they end up there's that moment where Marshall's getting ready to you know shut down all the drop holes and you know the Marines with him are like if you do this you're just as fucked as we are and you know fair enough. Like you're just one of us now. Like you're not a company stooge anymore. You're just you're just a guy who's just desperate to try and solve this clusterfuck that we're in. I mean, you see little allusions to the company being nefarious, like the Tans are like, we can't let the company get this technology. Not to mention Milt McGilving is like blinded by his loyalty to the company, and so he pulls a gun on the rest and gets himself killed in the second book. So that's like okay, like they obviously have the company at the top of their mind here, but you never see like Waylon Utani. I mean, even when Gerard Marshall is kind of musing about like, imagine what we would do with that technology. We could just do anything. Like he's never like mustache twirly, you know, he's never like what nefarious aims could we do? So it's interesting that you have this ominous kind of flow throughout the trilogy of Waylon Utani is too powerful, but we never really see them abuse that power much. It's very grey in its portrayal of Wayland Utani, you know, and that's actually quite Alex White in a lot of ways is is this grey world. And Tim Levin sort of takes that approach with Wayland Utani as well. Now, I think I mentioned it in the last episode, you know, where Gerard Marshall and the General Lee, you're going to have to remind me the name. Bassett. Bassett, you know, they're interactions humanize them both a lot. And, and you get that continuing in Armageddon. Gerard Marshall's Loki you know the hero he's he's the savior i mean sure he fucks everybody over and resets the the status quo at the same time but he's doing it but he for, doesn't mean to because, do it yes <laughs> his intentions are noble he's doing it with positive and heroic intentions of saving everybody and adam i'm gonna ask you here obviously lee probably remembered this but did you see that coming you know that the the earlier books do set it up quite a bit you know they talk about it in the last one as as a final resort but did you did you expect it to actually go down that way i wasn't sure i kind of didn't i thought it would just be like tense like ticking clock extra thing in the background like no wait don't do it we won you know i i kind of expected it to be like he would almost shut it down as a moment of tension but then they would find out that they won i didn't expect it to actually happen but again, once it does, it doesn't seem like the consequences are quite as dire as they're initially made out to be. Like, you get hints of hopefulness at the end, which is kind of good. And people even say, well, maybe this will be good for humanity. Maybe we need to be a bit more segmented. So it is kind of interesting, but still it's just like, ah, oh, you just shut it down because you misread the situation. Like, how, how messed up is that, you know? So, I don't know. I guess I didn't know what to make of it. I was just like, well, there goes humanity's way of, of traveling. Speaking of which, that was something else that was really interesting in, in this whole trilogy was the drop hole travel. I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie Supernova, but it kind of reminded me of that where they had to be in suspended animation or Event Horizon. Otherwise, they would just either go mad or be physically destroyed. And there was a kind of weird part in the book where Yakita, the predator that was in animation for a previous jump that was much shorter, insists on just staying awake in their chair. And you're like, how long was her perception of time for that 500 light year jump? <laughs> like, why did you do that? You didn't need to do that. Like you were in the animation before. I think she, I took that as just her wanting to see what they're because she was a scientist, wasn't she? I just uh, took that as her because it's established in the earlier books that they can survive drops 
without being i think in the very first book i think hashori goes through a drop without mm -hmm. being in suspended animation so they obviously can survive so she knows that she's probably going to live i just took it as her wanting to experience the rage technology out of just curiosity that sounds about right like, you know yeah. ev ever the scientist you know just this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to see what this is like i love that concept though because i mean granted again it's not massively unique to to the rage war but you know like adam's already alluded to with event horizon and supernova which i have seen a long time ago i remember it has james david spader in i think yeah mm -hmm. but I, I can barely remember that one but i i really enjoyed it because there's a moment later on in the book when one of maloney's helpers goes insane traveling through this phase enhanced drop hole and the his cryo unit his suspension unit fails and he goes absolutely batshit crazy and that's something that you know a lot that some of the earlier books had talked about is the effects of not being in proper suspension when you uh, when you go through them so i actually i really enjoyed actually seeing it take place here and again it's not unique but it was nice to see it as part of the alien franchise and i think maybe some of the older stuff maybe some of the perry novels kind of alluded to that kind of thing with the einstein drive i think they called it in the earlier novels so that that yeah that was cool it, it was a small part of it but it, it's again part of the world building because tim it's something tim alluded to in the past and then you get to see it happening here he he really did keep track of what what he was doing very well with with the world. Yeah, building. yeah, he must have had a solid crib sheet for these books because there was a lot of that sort of you know little things that can just be dropped offhand in an earlier book that then later on will sort of come full circle. So that was that was top notch. How did you guys feel about the xenomorphs in this one? I like that they seem to retcon them needing to breathe in space. You know, if, if I remember correctly, they sort of implied it in the second one, but it was not a thing in this one at all, from what I remember. No, I think when they put them aboard the Satan Saviour, I think they do have their... I mean, they have thruster packs. Maybe that's what it was, yeah. I Actually, I'll mention that scene because that's probably the most traditional alien encounter that we get in the book when they put them aboard the Satan Saviour and the, the crew and, and Hashori go hand to hand with them. Like that's probably the most sort of straight up traditional alien sequence that happens in any of these books that I can remember. As opposed, That's what I liked about these because we've mentioned the space opera style so many times, but they also have some more traditional sort of sequences and elements in them that ground them as alien and predator stories. So I thought the way that Tim sort of juggled them and gave you just enough of both was another another big tick. Yeah, I, I agree there. You know, you have these classical moments, but then you maybe not quite on the scale of the galactic elements, but then you go on to these big urban city warfare kind of bits as well, where you then also have moments of the aliens in the subway system or their equivalent of the subway system that feels very alien in terms of it being like this enclosed location. And it's also things we've seen like in Eternal. And it also gave me sort of flashes of the arcade game, you know, the SNES one, I think it is. I can I always get them mixed up where it's in in inner city. So it mm -hmm. was it was very alien and predator in that way, but also not a setting that's used that often. So it was still kind of fresh in in some regards like that. But no, I I, I totally agree with you. And it was cool to read about these 
epic battles bigger than we've ever seen in any like alien thing for sure and yeah you did have those darker moments where they were fighting him in the underground tunnels but i don't know if the xenomorphs are really given too much character in this one even compared to the other two in the trilogy they're just this mass swarm and you don't really have those kind of expected of alien those moments of intimate terror with a single individual xenomorph it's more like what is happening with them as this overwhelming force and and like we had talked about in previous episodes aaron like dealing with the acid like if you're just killing these aliens on such a mass scale like what happens with that acid buildup what does that do so stuff like that was more interesting to see but part of me does wish we had more of those kind of intimate horror moments with an alien but i don't know maybe not maybe this just wasn't the story for that sort of vibe with the alien i think that the nature of this story and the scale of this story kind of pushes them to the side and in some regards you know that can be frustrating you know, we will often complain and whine about some interpretations of the aliens in, in earlier EU pieces where they are portrayed as this mindless swarm of unintelligent creatures that it's just a wave a wave thing. And, and, and sometimes that's not satisfying. You know, again, it's something we whine about. It's something we complain about. But you kind of get away with it in this one because of the sheer scale of the story that Tim's trying to tell. But also in the fact that the aliens are being controlled they are being used and this is the way that their generals are using them so it's kind of forgiven but then on the flip side of that it's also like yeah well couldn't you find a better use for them but it's one of those things where the overall satisfaction of the story the narrative the entire thing kind of makes you forgive it i think I mean, it does touch on some interesting things with the alien a little bit in terms of the android generals and how connected they are with them. And it was talking about one of the generals that could like just feel all the the killing the aliens were doing and was like just the way it was described was really dark and cool. At the same time, though, at the end with the queen right there, I was like, oh, is the queen finally going to get free and like get her revenge? And did you think she was going to get Maloney? Kind of, yeah. I thought she was going to like have the ultimate vengeance with Maloney. And was it maybe it was Lilia who was like, oh, is the queen just kind of resigned to her subservience now? Or what would freedom be like to the queen or whatever? So I was kind of hoping we'd see an alien rampage against the rage on that ship, you know, as like... Wouldn't that have been stereotypical, though? Maybe it would have, yeah. I guess it's the same thing with Alexander, right? Like, wouldn't it have been stereotypical if he, with all these alien limbs, like, tore into these folks? And it's like, no, they just kill him in sleep and nuke him after they shoot him out into space. Okay, all this build-up with him, like, attaching these alien limbs to him, like, but... Well, let's talk Alexander then. Lee obviously fucking loves it. How did you feel about the whole grafting bits of the alien onto him? I was like, well, won't the acid, like, melt the android? Like, so... It oxidizes after death. Yeah, it, it's the Metal Gear explanation, right? It's just nanomachines, son. The nanomachines do it somehow. But I don't know. Yeah, the, the image of some android with alien limbs and a piece of an alien head was kind of a cool picture in mind, you know? So, like, I dug the concept. I was like, all right, these are super advanced androids with alien nanotechnology. Whatever, I'll go with it, you know? Yeah, you just didn't really see him get to do much after it, other than sabotage a predator ship and go after him. Never wake up. I didn't really know how I felt about that bit. I thought it was a cool visual, but then again, you know, I love the idea of... I'm one of those people that does think of a lot of Giga-esque elements as being inherently alien. You know, it's it's a question we often talk about throughout some of the, the other podcasts. So in that regards, the idea of him with these alien parts and the imagery of that was like, yeah, okay, that feels alien to me. 
But I also couldn't help but get the feeling that it might look like something Kenner made, where it's just a bit like, oh, I'm not sure about this. But ultimately, it doesn't doesn't really go anywhere, which maybe also is a savior in in some fashion. I'm, I really didn't know how to feel about Alexander. I really didn't. Lee, did you have anything you wanted to add extra on there? Because you obviously quite loved him and that element of the story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're fair comments. But like I said, it, I thought it was just such a glorious image and just the you know the idea of him cannibalizing his own men to sort of stitch himself back together. It was just, it was wonderfully twisted and I really dug it. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. Speaking of Star Trek things again, Aaron, both the humans and predators have holodecks in the series too. Well, they don't, I don't think they ever use the term holodeck, do they? So I can, that's again the terminology thing. I, I can let them get away with that. I'll tell you what did make me laugh, and it also made me wonder if it was uh, it was Tim having a dig, was um, Kalakta saying he liked the name Yaucha. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I thought the interaction with Kalakta and Issa Plant was cool because she was the scientist that had had a long time fascination with the Predators. And here she is talking to one of their most like high ranking elders. And then at the end of the book, she gets to go to their homeworld. Like, how cool would that be as just a, another book in the series? Just her on the Predator homeworld, like not even like a, a war book. I mean, I know that's what readers want. They <laughs> of course, they'd have to be fighting. And stuff, you can't but, just like, have a book of her. No. <laughs> <laughs> It'd have to be like a travel. We just have a book of scientific discovery and her having a nice time on the saline planet. Like I tell you what, if Tim wrote like <laughs> Isa Palant's guide, tourism guide to the Predator homeworld, I would read the shit out of that. So he dies at the end, right? He dies on the Macbeth. Collector? I don't think yeah. so. I, I didn't see anything. It's yeah. not said that he dies, so I assume he survived. But it was only the core the, the engine module that got ejected, wasn't it? And Kalakta... Yeah, but I think there was more Oh, no, I mean, if, if, if the Tans were there, yeah, yeah. yeah, then I don't think it ever specifically says that Kalakta is alive, but I, he's not said to die, so I presumed he, he did yeah, survive. He, he must be if Weir was alive. I was wondering, it's like, why, Lilia, did you detonate yourself also? Like, you could have just detonated everyone else, and you guys probably could have had the ship under control at that point, like... I think she wanted to. Well, I think the implication as well is is when she does Alexander, she's talking about her heart heating up. Oh, so it expends energy to, to do that as well, and hers couldn't take it either. So, so I mean, that was my assumption. It wasn't, it wasn't a voluntary thing. It was just part of the process. Yeah. I did, you know, there's, there's a lot of build-up to her acceptance of her fate. You know, there's, there's a build-up to the fact that she thinks she might be, or the Tans, I forget which way around it is, thinks she might be like the oldest android in existence, and she's lived a long life, and blah, 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 you know, that, that kind of stuff. And I found it very satisfying for her to have this acceptance with her fate, to own her part of the war that was going on, and also be the one to essentially end it. You know, I, I found Lilia to be a very satisfying character, yeah, I agree. I do kind of wish in her final like confrontation with Maloney, I mean, some of her inner dialogue at that part was was cool, but given how gloating Maloney was through the whole trilogy, it's like, can we see her witness her defeat a bit more? Because she dies pretty instantly. So did you, did you find it dissatisfying? Did, did you want more pain Maybe and Maybe a little bit. Yeah, because of how just painfully obnoxious, crazy old woman she was, it's like, let her witness the total failure of the rage now, at, at least for a little bit before her heart explodes. But uh, she was one of the first ones to go. But don't you also, like, I like that because it's very real. That's true. Yeah. Life isn't always guaranteed to have this big satisfying death yeah. to the villain. And yeah, I, I it worked for me. Although I, I see your point. 
I totally see your point. Just from a story thematic, yeah, but maybe that's cliche, like you said, too, to have the villain be like, oh, no, I've been defeated. Like, yeah, maybe that's cliche. I kind of liked how, like, because Maloney was doing all the gloating. Lilia didn't gloat. She just got on with that shit. I, yeah. I thought that was a nice sort of contrast there. You know, when, when the time came, she didn't do any gloating. She just pushed the button. Well, it was interesting how Maloney just felt like she was in such a defensive position against not only Lilia, but one of the 13 Bassett. Is that who she spoke to? It's Barkley, isn't it? Barkley, that's right. Bassett was the owner Marine General. And she's she's just like, you feel like she's almost trying to convince herself more than she is them. Yeah, that was a great little exchange. Yeah. This whole part of that, you know, Drew Cathy kind of unease suggestion that we brought up earlier, you know, I love it. I love that so much. And there was a little bit, so this is something I actually, I'm always quite interested in, is the, is the idea of how much the predators create and steal and adapt and stuff like that. So I really enjoyed, you know, the time spent on on the asteroid. And there was lots of really interesting little moments in there where Tim does very much say in, in this particular take on the predators, they do steal and adapt technology. You know, it's not saying that their technology is based entirely on other, you know, on stolen technology, but it's especially towards the end, you know, it's it's the implication of them doing what humans do, you know, taking others' approaches and building on it to make themselves better because, you know, the predators have their own drop holes that are far more efficient than what, what mankind has. And this interest in taking what was left of the Macbeth was cool. And I've always been one of the people that thinks that the predators do do this kind of thing because a culture based entirely on sort of what the predators are often portrayed as can't be can't value really the the scientists as much but it, it was it was cool to see you know like yakita in this one and i don't think it felt like she was shunned you know there, there was it was almost like she was to be feared was the way the predators first introduced all the human yeah. characters to her so i i really did like this take and giving them a bit more of a technological a bit more of a an advanced feel to them but still maintaining that level of scavenger perhaps that's the wrong yeah. word but you, you know what i mean so i i really like that in this it's a concept typically i'm not big on but i feel like in this story it was handled quite well it was interesting how they mentioned yikita was from the um, wounded clan so it makes you think like oh predators that maybe they've been injured in a way that they can't really hunt anymore there's still other purposes for them in, in predator society so it was really cool to see a predator scientist and see them do research my problem with that concept sometimes is the implication that the predators they just take the technology and they don't really understand it i think that's kind of what i took from the alpha predator the hunt, the hunting grounds uh, tapes. Uh, some of Isabel's observations was like, well, they don't really know how it works. They just take the technology and they blow it up if they need to because they they don't know how to fix it, you know. And I was like, come on, the predators are traveling space. They're not stupid. It's like, yeah, I can I can get on board with them adopting technologies, the things they find, the races they're hunting. They study it, they incorporate it into their own tech. Like that's kind of interesting. But they're still a highly advanced race that would be developing their own stuff too. So for me, it's just like as long as it's not the implication that they just steal other racist tech and it's it's the forever midnight right it's like i don't want them to be slave drivers and just thieves you know it's like there's some nuance to be had there i think and it's it's handled well in this book any thoughts on that one like yeah i i i like i'm sort of on board with ridge talk really and i thought this book certainly the implication i got from it is yes they might have stolen some of this technology but you know they've reverse engineered it they know what they're doing they've incorporated it into their own tech so yeah i thought that was a cool idea i mean if you're hunting an advanced species and they have you know a plasma gun that's better than your plasma gun 
why wouldn't you take that home with you and you know a it's a trophy and b it can help you you know next time you go hunting so yeah i i like that idea and i also thought it was handled pretty well in this So something you mentioned earlier that is normally something I absolutely, not, not hate, I struggle with the portrayal of is the team up. So, you know, we we must have talked about it in the past on the podcast. And I don't like the team up in the film because I never feel like it's earned. So it's always one of those things that I sort of judge when it comes to any of the media is is the team up earned. And it's, it's very much always an inevitability when it comes to AVP stories. I found it really goddamn satisfying in this. I, I also really like it when enemies turn into friends or, you know, that sort of not quite sure friends, but allies nonetheless. And I really liked the way it was handled in this. I thought it all came across very nicely. And there was just something so satisfying about, I mean, it did run the risk of becoming too, um, happening too much. But it was the idea of, of the predators, you know, showing up through the smoke and destruction and decloaking and getting stuck in and helping humanity out. And it was it was through, I think, Hashori and Yagita really sort of, you know, make it personable and with their interactions with the with the characters. So it just it felt really well earned and really satisfying to me. I really liked Hishori as as a character, and it was cool that she paid her respects to Yukita when Yukita was killed. And I was like, ah, oh, don't kill the, the scientist lady predator that wasn't even really fighting. How cool was her idea, though? Sneaking a cloaked ship in with uh, with the marine ship, just opening yeah. fire from inside. I thought mm-hmm. that was really fucking cool. Part of me, too, was like, well, we have the cyborg hunter in hunting ground. She couldn't have just built some legs for herself so she wasn't on this restricted platform. She, but... she was wearing her scars with pride. I liked it. Although that's true, I would have also been quite cool to see a cyborg predator. Mm-hmm. But I liked them both as as predator characters. You know, in the books, we've seen a lot more female predator characters, especially in the more recent ones like Eyes of the Demon, as well as Ultimate Prey. I think both of those had more female predators than male predators, honestly. Yeah, I, you know, it was something that was pointed out about those anthologies. But then when it came to this book, it was like, yeah, pretty much every book, they're all female in this anyway. Anyway, it's cool. And it was, it was nice to see. If I remember rightly, Tim's portrayal of them was, was more in line with what I liked of in them not being, you know, bust, no busted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mentioned this when we did the last book. He, uh, there's no, there's no boobs here. This is a boob free zone. But I, I agree with you, Aaron, in terms of like the once adversaries, now allies thing with the predators and the human, the humans was handled really well in this, even on Weaver's world, like seeing the, the skirmishes of that and like the human survivor just saying, hey, help us and the predators follow them down into these underground areas. So seeing some of those interactions was really cool as well. I like how they explained the name behind Weaver's world as well, like these spiders that they found that were non dangerous there, but were still super creepy, even though, you know, he's, you know, making Sigourney Weaver reference with that. Yeah, that was it. Sort of dressed up the the obvious nod as you know with a, its own sort of in-universe explanation. That was a neat touch. I do kind of resent the idea of my ship being the one bringing destruction to a a place <laughs> named after Sigourney Weaver. I'm like, is, is this a, is this some commentary on fandom, Tim? What what are you getting? At least you got to be the hero in um in the Charybdis. Yeah, but I went out like a bitch. If uh, I remember. <laughs> No, you come back from that. That's that was a that was a red herring. You come back from that. 
that, that was how the captain described the character, wasn't it? Yeah, but then do you 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 actually survive for a minute, don't you? You do. You come good in the end. I remember that because I remember enjoying that. Nah, that was that was cool. Did you have any thoughts on the team up, Lee? I don't I don't really know your opinion on that particular stereo not stereotype plot point concept. You know what? I'm really struggling with with the brain today. <laughs> Like as a concept, it's not something that's ever bothered me. It's it's all in the execution. Like much like you said, I didn't like it in the film, but in this, it was fine. I thought it was also quite interesting in this, where most times when you see a predator human team up, it seems to be the human earns the respect of the predator. But going back to the first book in this, that's not really what it's about. It's mutual desperation. Like the predators don't admit it, but they're just as desperate as we are. And so I thought that was an interesting twist on it. It's not like, you know, they've we've earned their respect. It's like we know that we need each other, you know, if we're gonna yeah. live through this. So I thought that was a neat twist on it. And yeah, I thought Tim handled this really well in the book. So I yeah, I, I dug it. It feels satisfying. It doesn't feel yeah contrived or it doesn't feel like it doesn't fit into the narrative it's not like avp where it's done for the sake of it being done because it's a thing that avp stories do it just it yeah. just feels so natural you did have one moment of like horrifying focus on the xenomorphs when they went into detail about the harvesting of the humans in cryosleep on the flying ships and how like not all of them woke up and a few of them did and there was like a symphony of screams and cracks and gore and all that with all the aliens they were spawning and i think isn't it like one of the generals checks in on the scientists and she's all yeah crazy obsessive about oh you'll have sixteen thousand aliens that that was that was mishima's um scientist if i remember rightly you know what that that actually might be a little bit of a negative towards tim here is like mishima's dropped fairly early on you know starts out as being this major sounding character of the book and then much like alexander you know seems to just disappear so it kind of feels like maybe there are a few threads or a, a few characters that aren't really seen through to a satisfying conclusion weaver's world in general you don't yeah really find out what happens there like the last time you see it they're still in the ship and then at the end of the book, you never really get... I know there's not really a place to sort of catch up with it. I'm not sure really it even needed to catch up with it. I feel like leaving the fate of the planet hanging was, you know, was a fine sort of style choice. But it, it doesn't ever really get a sort of bow tied on it like the main cast do. Yeah, it's kind of left hanging. Did that bother you guys or was that a non I mean, it, for you? we did follow this character on Weaver's World a little bit. So I was like, oh, what what happened with him? Did he make it? Like, so yeah, on some on some level, it's like we kind of left this this thread hanging a little bit. And yeah, I thought the alien scientists of the rage would have more of a prominence as well. Aaron. So there were a few things I thought could have been explored or resolved a bit more for sure. But again, I felt like maybe not wrapping that up kind of tied into the, the sort of the uncertainty of the ending. Like it ends on on a fairly uncertain note and, you know, not clarifying exactly what's going on. Because I, you never, it's sort of implied that hell is going to be completely overrun and, and destroyed and no one's going to survive, but you never actually find out what happens to it. So, you know, all the sort of the, the wider wider picture is, is sort of a blank, which again ties into everything being severed and separated. So I, I was fine with that. Like I said, it was, I thought it was probably a, a style choice. And like I said, it tied into the sort of the murkiness of the ending. That's a fair comment. And I've got one more point I want to talk about with, with this book, this series, but I also just want to deviate a little bit there. Because after this, Tim did write two short stories set within the Rage War continuity. And they were both about Rococo Halley. 
I think it would have been fun to have seen him take on the consequences of, of the end of the book. Might have been a bit more interesting to, you know, to go and revisit uh, Weaver's world, to go and revisit those situations. But, Lee, do you, I don't think Adam read them. Do you, Lee, do you want to talk about the, the shorts a little bit? Yeah, well, we, we, we discussed this. We were enjoying these so much that we debated whether to touch on the on the shorts and we decided that we, we would. I won't go into too much because, you know, you've done podcasts on these anthologies but yeah I, I you mentioned earlier on in this about you know would you like to see a follow-up book and ever since you said it I've been thinking I would like to see a follow-up on Weaver's World maybe they've they've sort of got the aliens suppressed but they haven't managed to defeat them you know they're still there they're still a threat you know you've got urban sort of settings that you could introduce on a small scale aliens into I think there's a lot of ripe material there that you could use but as for the 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 shorts he did do yeah, the, 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 the alien one, which is Hallie and a bunch of the Marines from this series actually facing off against the, the fire spites that they very briefly mention on the Predator Lab in Armageddon. It was okay. It felt a little bit by the numbers, if I'm honest. I mentioned before we started, it, it felt like maybe Tim had written that one because he was asked asked to do it whereas his his predator short which is uh hallie encountering and fighting a predator which was mentioned in first book uh, incursion the very first book that was brilliant mm -hmm. like, that was really good it's a thoroughly enjoyable read it's got it's got all the sort of usual avp cliches in it but it's just done in such an entertaining way it's uh, it's a really cracking read and if you enjoyed the rage war I would recommend you giving that one a spin because it felt like the Predator one actually tied into a lot of plot points that are mentioned in this trilogy, whereas the Alien one didn't so much. So the, the Predator one really felt like a proper sort of full-blooded prequel to these, and it was also a cracking read. The Alien one feels very inconsequential. It's a very sort of standard kind of feeling alien story where they show up, everything's abandoned, and oh shit, no, it's not, there's some creatures here, and they show up, kill some people, and then they go. That's about the extent of the feeling of that book, because it's not told through Hallie's point of view like the Predator one is. The only thing I really liked about the Alien one was the fact that it ended on that sour note that I really enjoy, and that Tim sort of ended, kind of ended the rage war on of <laughs> this character being left behind because people think she's dead. And she's just sort of surrounded by the fire sprites. So, yeah, I wasn't a massive fan of that one. It was okay, but that is unfortunately also the best you could describe the Aliens anthology anyway as an overall package. It was okay, generally poor. But no, the, the Predator one, which opens, I think, I think it opens yes, the first, Predator first anthology, one. whereas the Alien one closes out the Alien anthology. Brian and uh, Jonathan actually really liked him because I think Tim's Predator short also opens Eyes of the Demon, unrelated to the Rage War, by the way. Also really cracking. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree with Lee. Uh, the, the Predator one was very satisfying. Felt like there was a lot more meat to it and, and that Tim was having fun with that one. And it was very interesting to... I think it was also one of those reactions to some of the initial complaints about Predator Incursion with the Predators being underpowered when it came to fighting the Excursionists. And this Predator that they run across in, in the short is definitely not underpowered. Yeah, it's a, like it's it's been experimented on for months and is sort of falling apart and it's still a bad motherfucker. Like it just rips them to pieces. It's uh, it's yeah, like you said, that was I remember if it bleeds, that's it. I remember if it bleeds being good, but I was honestly quite surprised by how good the Predator short was. And I think I'm probably gonna have to go back and read the whole anthology again. The whole anthology was brilliant. 
I did read that short, <gasps> the one in um, If It Bleeds, but it's been a while and I didn't really have the full context because I had not read the Rage War trilogy yet. So I do want to go back and read that again. I would say that you will get a lot more out of the Predator short if you have already read the Rage War because there's so many sort of references and tie-ins to it. And Lee, if you haven't, you haven't read Eyes yet, have you? The second anthology. No, I haven't. It, again, it's not related to the Rage War, but you should go check that one out because I'm fairly sure Tim's short in that opens the anthology and it's another really okay. good one. I'd go give that one a read. I might blitz the two of them, actually. So I had one last note to bring up as a talking point, and it was, what did you guys think of the solution with the generals? This idea of reversing their connection to the aliens. How satisfying did you think that was? I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was an interesting, because there's a lot of questions of, oh man, how are they just going to defeat this overwhelming force? But it was kind of a solid plan. It was interesting to see even the Predators, Hishori and Yakita, when it was tested, they were like impressed with what the humans had come up with, or at least what Lilia and Anissa and the Tans, I guess, had come up with. So yeah, I thought it was sound. It would make sense that these generals would have a self-destruct mechanism so that if they were captured, they could be destroyed. You know, one of them tried to use it in the in the Yatja base. So and that was how they essentially discovered it. Rom- Rommel did in the second book. Blue oh, that's right. In the cave. Yeah. yeah. So and we were set kind up. Of, yeah, we were kind of like, well, they ended his character too quickly. We thought there would be an escape through the caves. But yeah, maybe he saw there wasn't really a, a chance for him there. And then see, I, I bring it up because through a lot of the early parts of the book, it was so wishy washy. Like whenever they were talking about the concept and the plan, it was like there was no real detail in what they were actually attempting to do. Well, not in what they were attempting to do, how they were attempting to do it. And I don't know if I wasn't paying attention or something, but it didn't seem to me that until like the last fifth of the book, maybe when it actually all starts to kick into gear, that Tim actually laid the plan out. None of you guys have that reaction? The how, the how and the, the technical hows of it? it? Well, Lilia's plan is always just to get the nanotech to humanity but i think it was when they're studying oscar i think that's when palant comes up with the idea of you know they can blow themselves up can we trip it somehow i think that's where the nugget of it comes from and then when they meet up i think it's lilia sort of says yes we can do this i can do this that was my read of it anyway it was kind of an interesting thing that you had these two independent groups that were both researching the technology the rage was using and they found out about each other and they were like hey we need to meet up and combine our knowledge because that's where our strength will be here if we do this and that's exactly what they did so for me it worked i just was like ah man did we have to kill lily off i mean i get the whole sacrifice thing that that was what made her feel human in a way but that was her ripley into the furnace moment yeah all right so that was everything from me did you guys have any other points you wanted to bring up about the series the book just overall really solid read i think you can still find them pretty easily now if i'm not mistaken but i'd definitely like to see a re-release like i said earlier as one big volume that would be cool yeah i'd love to see tim Loden come back honestly i think i'd prefer something more along the lines of out of the shadows but you know independent of ripley just something more traditional from him again after this trilogy but if he did another book in this story that he did i'd be all for that too uh, no i think i've pretty much covered everything i wanted to say you know, we've we've been praising these these pretty hard in all three podcasts, and I dig them. Yeah, some of my favourite Alien and, and Predator books, just because you know they are a bit different. They stand out. They're more memorable than you know. There's so many other books that sort of follow similar patterns, and these really do feel fresh and different, and are all the better for it. 
And I never really gave a score, actually, uh, to start with. I never gave, really gave a, an initial impressions, but I think it's pretty clear that I've really enjoyed these myself. Did you ever do a written review? Yeah, I did a review of all of these ones. It's only the more recent stuff I haven't done reviews of yet. <laughs> but we, we know that's been a lack of um, enthusiasm, shall we say. You gave it a 7.2. So I, I would still settle around about a 7 around about an eight you know i i think i have been a little bit more nitpicky in this one but i think that's because i've slightly woken up more <laughs> for the new year but i mean for, for the things i have nitpicked i do very much enjoy the rage war you know i had memories of liking it and i'm so glad that we finally got around to visiting it for this podcast which meant you know revisiting it for me and it's it's been such a satisfying read it's been a unique read like we've said all along like we've said in this one it's not I wouldn't want to return to this exact kind of soft, hard sci-fi, as I called it, you know, but I would like to revisit the world and, and the continuity that Tim did a set up in the Rage War. You know, I would like to see what happened to Hishori and Isoplan and, and the Tans, and I would like to see... I'd be quite happy with just a story set on one of these colonies that was separated that has no idea what happened. You know, they have no idea if the Rage defeated mankind or not, and maybe they assume they did because the drop hole shut down. I think there's a lot of... Things that somebody, whether it was Tim or whether it was another author, could play with in, in this particular narrative. And I'd very much like to see that explored or just see Tim return. And I can't wait to see what this tease thing was between him and Audible that was teased. I forget when it was. A good few months ago by now, it must have been. I imagine we'll find out around Alien Day, to be honest. If it's Audible, then it's going to be some sort of Alien Day related release like all the other ones have been. If it's an adaptation of this, that would be tricky to do. I mean, even compared to the Out of the Shadows books, just because there's so much going on in these and it's such a huge epic battle. I struggled with the Sea of Sorrows adaptation because the cast was so huge. So I, I kind of... I wonder how well it would translate here, but I'd totally be up for it. I'd love to see them do it and hopefully it works well. But again, whether it's something new with Tim, whether it's an adaptation of this, I'd just, I'd very much like to see a Tim return to the world. Yeah, agreed. So everybody out there, you know, let us know how you feel about this series. Feel free to comment on the forum, comment on the social posts. Hell, give us an email, podcast at avpgalaxy.net and let us know your thoughts on the series. And if you have any comments on any of the things we've raised, any disagreements, any agreements, you know, feel free to uh, write in and give us a shout. We always appreciate it. We love to hear from folk, good or bad, prefer the good, but uh, the bad is also welcome as well. If you are listening to this on a, a podcast platform that lets you leave reviews, again, please do. You know, it all helps in our visibility to people, to other fans, and we want to reach as many fans as we can. And on the same vein, you know, if you know anybody who's interested, please do feel free to uh, share the episode, share the show um, with those folk. Adam, where can folk find us online? You can always find us on our website, avpgalaxy.net, where we have editorials, interviews, information about the films and wider franchise, as well as discussion board where you can interact with other fans, as well as on all the major socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. If you just search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, you're sure to find us. And we've also got a tea public. I'm wearing one of our um, uh, exclusive designs right now. For our audio listeners, it's an alien head with uh, some Predator wrist blades through it. 
there's a reverse of this also available of a predator head with an alien tail through it. So that's on our T public page. Go check those out. I love these designs, but not many people have been buying them, which is a shame. Uh, so if you want to support the website, if you want to wear some cool fucking alien and predator clothing, head on over and check that out. And speaking of supporting the website, we will be launching a Patreon soon. We're still working out all the details with that. Keep an eye out for that. That is something that's in development. I do have a concept for some Patreon exclusive series kind of thing, and I would like to get some done and ready before we launch. It'll happen. We'll see how quick it Sometime happens. this year. Yeah, sometime we'll this year. Lee, do you want to pimp out your ride? <laughs> yep. My Xena uh, Pete, well, my, my, the site that I co-admin. Xenopedia is avp.fandom.net. I'm never sure of the new address, but I'm certain it is .net. Just type Xenopedia into Google. That's all I yeah, you, Yeah, you, you will find it. Or even AVP Wiki should bring it up. Drop by, contribute, get involved. Uh, be great to see you there. I think we are going to be visiting... Marvel's Alien. Next. And well, I'm not sure the order we're going to do this in. And Aliens Vasquez, they will be our two next topics. I've just picked up the final two issues of Marvel's Alien Volume 3 today. So I'm looking forward to finishing that one off to see uh, how well that goes. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to our Vasquez episode because we'll also be joined by two uh, new voices on the show, two community guests who I'm, I'm very looking forward to talking to on voice for the first time. So keep an eye out. I have no idea which order we're going to do those in, but we are going to do them soon. So as always, you know, thank you everybody for listening. We appreciate it all. If you want to contact me personally, I'm on Twitter at underscore Corporal Hicks. If you'd like to follow me personally, it's at RidgeTop21 on Twitter and Instagram. This has been Corporal Hicks. RidgeTop. And probably for the last time in a little while, who the fuck am I? I just want to say, actually, cheers for inviting me along for the, the three of these. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed revisiting these books. I mean, we got more books to do, so come on back. We are going to have eyes to do as well at some point. <laughs> so uh, if we can get you on for those. Well, thank you, everybody. I've already forgot what sign off we used to do for AVP. I feel like it was, are you looking at me or the clock? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> This is uh this is us signing up.